0: the Middletown podcast. My name is Fiona McCaffrey and today I'll be speaking to Tara Vernon on the subject of promoting sleep. Tara is an autism trainer advisor with Middletown Centre for Autism and she has a degree in psychology and is a board certified teacher in applied behaviour analysis. She is a member of both the Psychological Society of Ireland and the Teaching Council of Ireland and importantly for today's session Tara is a certified sleep counsellor. Tara, you're very welcome and thank you for agreeing to do the podcast today. So Tara, just following on from the webinar that you provided for the centre, can you explain the circadian
1: rhythm and why it is important? Sure, Fiona. The circadian rhythm refers to the sleep-wake cycle, which occurs across the 24-hour period. It's also known as our body clock because it, it, it is the circadian rhythm that tells our bodies when to go to sleep and when to wake up. It's affected by external cues, which are called Zeitgeibers. So for example, light. Light's the most important one and the most powerful one, you know, where you'll often hear about the detrimental effect of blue light, the light that comes from television screens or phones or devices. Another zeitgeber is temperature. So our body temperature affects how we sleep and we tend to wake up if we're too hot or we're too cold. So what we know is that our body temperature is um, at its highest in the evening, but that's also when our melatonin is secreted, which of course helps us to sleep. Well, it helps us to get to sleep, but it doesn't maintain sleep. And our deepest sleep occurs in the early hours in the morning, and that's when the body's at its lowest temperature. So it's kind of important to know that if you fall asleep before your body reaches the minimum temperature, you'll get a good night's sleep or a full night's sleep. But if you fall asleep after your body reaches the minimum temperature, so it's often around two or three o'clock in the morning, you're less likely to sleep well, and you're less likely then, of course, to feel rested the next day. Another zeitgeber like would be meals or meal times. So, having three regular meals in the day is really important, so as not to adversely impact on your body clock. So, eating regularly is going to help our bodies to get the energy they need. If we eat too late in the evening, that's going to affect our sleep onset because our body's going to be working on the food digestion instead of sleep. Other zeitgebers like are things like our social interactions and our activities. So. If we exercise too late in the evening, that's going to impact on our sleep. If we stay out too late, et cetera. The other thing about our circadian rhythm is that it's affected by our age. For example, changes in adolescence is going to push um, a teenager's body clock out by about two hours, which is why young people tend to be more night owls. And also with older people, they tend to get up early. So they tend to be more the morning lark, if you will. The circadian rhythm is important because it governs our sleep-wake cycle and of course our sleep is imperative to our survival. If our circadian rhythm is disrupted, it's going to affect our our, um, physical health, it's going to affect our mental health. It can lead to weight gain, um, poor impulse control, slower thinking, poor, poor emotional regulation and so on. So one way to understand the importance of our circadian rhythm is to consider the impact of jet lag. And how the change to our body's um, settling and waking times can make us feel tired and groggy during the day. And how it, it will affect our mental and physical performance. So, and in fact, you don't even really need to travel through time zones. We can experience the same kind of jet lag effects when we stay up too late and then get up later at the weekend.
0: So Tara, circadian rhythm involves things that we may not necessarily think are important in relation to sleep. Like what time we eat at, patterns of socializing and our patterns of exercising. Quite simple things that we can
1: start to look at to promote sleep. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that we I suppose most people don't consider the Zeitgeipers. Most people maybe they think about sleep being set when in fact it's not. There are a lot of things that we can do to change ours our change our sleeping patterns or um, improve our sleeping patterns too, because sleep is a behavior. So, as a behavior, it means that it's something that we can change.
0: It's a really interesting way of thinking about sleep. Mm-hmm. So,
1: Tara, what about autism? How does autism impact on sleep? Well, sleep in autism is actually really a, a significant issue. Um, the research will show that more than eighty percent of children and young people with autism experience sleep problems, and of course. That in time is going to negatively impact on their um, health related quality of life, their adaptive behavior, you know, being able to cope when they're challenged. Uh, and it's going to impact on their social reciprocity, potentially their stereotypic behavior as well. But it also affects the, the whole family functioning. It affects the well-being of parents and siblings as well. There's a number of factors and they're, all, they're related to the diet of impairments and autism. So, for example, um, behavioral rigidity. So the, the child or young person might need to engage in, in a very long or prolonged routine at bedtime, which is going to delay their sleep onset. It may be that there's a co-occurring um, neurological issue, so like an irregular circadian rhythm. So we know that that's going to negatively impact on the sleep-wake cycle. So it might mean that it's harder to go to sleep, harder to wake up, etc. Um, an irregular production of melatonin as well will affect the cycle. Um, anxiety which, as we know, often occurs in autism, can lead to insomnia or other sleep disorders. ADHD, which has about a 50% co-occurrence rate with autism. That can cause um, differences around bedtime, elevated moods, etc. There's things like um, co-occurring medical problems, so constipation, reflux, epilepsy, And the seizures and epilepsy can significantly affect sleep and also will affect parental behavior because parents will be more concerned if their child has um, epilepsy and may have a seizure. The other things would be medication, for example. So for children and young people on medication, they may may experience side effects that are going to interfere with their sleep. So SSRIs, um, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, which are often used in anxiety, can cause hyperactivity or agitation at bedtime. Um, antipsychotics like risperidone can cause um, a lot of sleepiness during the day and so that's going to impact on the child or young person being able to fall asleep or indeed stay asleep during the night as we know quite a lot or, or the majority really of people um, and children with autism have heightened sensitivities to sensory stimuli so they, they're going to find it much much harder to be able to filter out light or sound tactile input smell etc usually at nighttime, our brain filters out all of those things but that tends not to happen in the brain of someone with autism, so they can can end up staying in a high state of alertness, which is going to impact on their ability to fall asleep. There's also suggestions around theory of mind, and that theory of mind plays a role because the child or young person can't see the effect of their not going to bed, for example, and what that effect that has on their parent or carer. Um, They're also looking at weak central coherence, so meaning here that the child or young person might not be able to pick up on the signals that it's time for sleep, or they might not make the connections in terms of the pre-bedtime activities. So that's why consistent routines and visual supports are important. There's also things like differences in executive functioning, and they can impact on being able to carry out the bedtime routine or indeed even being able to stop the daytime activity. So what you're doing just before bed and move to the nighttime activity. So your bedtime routine, for example.
0: So Tara, what are some of the
1: common sleeping issues for autistic people? The most common issues highlighted, um, Fiona, would be bedtime resistance, um, a difficulty with sleep onset, that is to say with falling asleep, a difficulty with sleep maintenance, so being able to stay asleep throughout the night. There's early morning waking, also short duration sleeping. There's um, sleep fragmentation, so where the child or the young person's sleep pattern is quite erratic and they they wake up a lot during the night. There's heightened um, anxiety around bedtime or hyperarousal. We also have um, unwanted co-sleeping and also excessive daytime sleepiness. But the most consistent ones seem to be having a shorter sleep time, um, taking longer to sleep and not getting the most out of your sleep, so having a lower sleep efficiency. That's great, That's
0: a very comprehensive um, response there on how autism might impact on sleep. And you mentioned anxiety there and how anxiety impacts on sleep. Can you provide some helpful strategies that might support
1: people whose sleep may be impacted by anxiety? As I have just mentioned there, anxiety is, is um, often a co-occurring condition with autism, um and the research looks has been looking at how there's a two-way relationship between anxiety and sleep. So if you're anxious, it's hard to go to sleep because there's increased cortisol. And then poor sleep, of course, will, will worsen your emotional well-being or your mental health. So there's um anxiety management strategies that you can incorporate into your into into your daytime routine, into the evening routine, into the bedtime routine that can help reduce stress and anxiety. So for example, things like Um, replacing more stimulating activities in the evening with uh, calming activities. So activities that are going to uh, promote relaxation, things like maybe jigsaws, doing some yoga, engaging in special interest, having a bath, bedtime story, etc. Like what we want to avoid is um, things that might be frightening or things that might increase adrenaline. So for example, maybe programs on the television or computer games, that sort of thing. We also want to ensure that the child or young person exercises or engages in physical activity every day. Um, Maybe listening to calming music or audio, audio books, but not on a blue screen device because of um, because of the light uh, emanating from the blue screen. Things like introducing a comfort object can be helpful, something that the child can really in a way it's substituting the, the parent or the carer. For some children or for some young people, it can be helpful to create a routine that's comforting. So a nighttime ritual, a particular phrase maybe, or a special handshake, pattern of kisses, that sort of thing. We also need to look at encouraging the use of relaxation techniques. So things like progressive muscle relaxation or calm breathing strategies. We do need to remember here, though, that if we're teaching relaxation techniques, they take time, time to learn, time to take effect. And so they need to be completed consistently for a number of weeks in order for them to become effective. We can also practice or encourage practicing mindfulness, um, helping the child or young person to learn to self-soothe. Things like massage or deep pressure to the joints and limbs will will help to promote relaxation. Um, They can be done by the person themselves or for the person. They'll help induce feelings of calm, which will then in turn, of course, reduce anxiety. Being able to share their worries with somebody that they trust so not before um, bedtime. Um, it's much more preferable to do this during the day. And you can use things like the worry jar or the worry doll, maybe a notebook where the, um, the child or young person can write it down or even draw the worry out. So that can help to externalize the worry or the anxiety. And then sharing the worries can help avoid the feelings of anxiety or stress um, before bedtime or during, indeed when the child wakes up during the night if they do. Other ideas are things like creating a safe space. So it's really along the lines of guided imagery where um, if the child is feeling anxious, that they can think about a place and think about in their mind, a place where they are happy and they feel safe and they feel content. Um, Creating something like a happy box or a calm box, making it ideally in conjunction with the child or the young person, and then using it to help them to be able to learn and develop Um, self-regulation strategies or coping strategies, um, or even developing self-soothing strategies for themselves. So often in these, you're using multi-sensory items. So items that will help calm different senses as well as the coping items. Another idea would be that before bedtime, you'd reflect on positive thoughts, uh, happy thoughts. So that can help the child or the young person to be able to go to bed on a calm or a happy thought. Um, You can shore these up with visual supports as well. And and actually, in and of itself, the bedtime routine, if it's consistent and if it's predictable, will lower anxiety. And we can use visual supports to help the child and the young person to be able to understand and follow the routine. Parents could actually start implementing today. You don't need to go and buy anything
0: for this. It's just starting to use good routines, supported by visuals and keeping things very calm and orderly in the run up to bedtime. Would that be a fair thing
1: to say? Yeah, absolutely, Fiona. I think so. It's really about looking at how you can work on anxiety and lowering anxiety from the bigger picture of it as well. Being able to put in place quite small strategies, really, but using them over time, like having your routine over time, using your massage, or deep pressure over time, you know, that's going to help induce an overall feeling of of better calmness or greater calmness, rather, um, and reduce anxiety overall. Can you explain what sleep hygiene is? Sleep hygiene refers to the practices that focus on having consistent daytime and nighttime practices. The idea being that they promote sleep and encourage better sleep behavior. The aim is that when they're practiced um, over time, they become routine. So when we're looking at promoting sleep hygiene, what we're looking at is um, sharing information on these good sleep practices with parents and with carers, because The parents' own beliefs, their own thoughts, their own feelings around sleep will influence not only the behavior of the child, but also the behavior of the parent and will factor in in terms of if they feel that there's possibilities for change. The change does take time with sleep, Fiona. Children learn at different rates. But as I mentioned earlier on with sleep being a behavior, poor sleep practices, you know, they can be treated, they can be unlearned. Schools have a role to play because we can promote or or look at developing an understanding of sleep hygiene in schools through programs such as the one Sleep Scotland run, sound sleep programs. They've developed them for primary school students and secondary school students. The role a school can also play is in teaching, for example, the importance of diet and exercise, um, making sure that the students have an opportunity to engage in exercise or physical activities during their their time at school or indeed after school. You know, so like the research does support an association between good sleep hygiene and better sleep across ages. So it's definitely something worth investing in.
0: Very interesting, Tara. Thank you very much.
1: Any further tips that may promote sleep that you haven't mentioned already? There are a lot of strategies that will promote better sleep. So I just mentioned exercise there in terms of school, but making sure that the child or young person engages in in exercise during their day so um, walking the dog maybe going to the park jumping on a trampoline exercise will make us feel physically tired but it also reduces the levels of cortisol in our bodies so the important thing to remember with that though is in avoiding exercise in the three hours before bedtime because if we um, engage in exercise there it can impact on our readiness to sleep the other things are looking at the environment so the environment factors that will encourage better sleep or good sleep is you know making sure the bedroom is dark and quiet you can use things like black outlines or some children find it very difficult to sleep if the room is dark so using something like a low wattage light if necessary but keeping it at floor level so it's out of the line of sight environmental noise needs to be kept to a minimum as well so you know making sure that the t- the television isn't on loudly downstairs for example if the bedroom's too warm, that's going to impact on sleep, so we need to keep the bedroom temperature at a comfortable level. Also, it's better to keep the bedroom free of electronic equipment, so televisions or game, gaming consoles, et cetera, and indeed any other distractions. Clothes and toys put away, for example. What would be ideal is that the bedroom's only used for sleeping. It's not possible in every household, of course, but that would be ideal. Electronic devices, so I mentioned about blue light earlier, so they shouldn't be used in the hour before bedtime. We also need to consider sensory sensitivities. So um, are the child's pajamas a bed linen, are they comfortable for them? Um, Especially those with tactile sensitivities. You can use things like scented oils, maybe lavender or so on the child's pillow or the stuffed toy, but obviously only if it's a scent that they find soothing or relaxing. Weighted blankets can be used, but uh, they're really only used um, in order to help the child or young person to settle. They'd need to be removed as soon as they were asleep. But also you'd need to consult with an OT prior to using one. The weight needs to be correct for the person and obviously risk needs to be assessed as well. Other things are setting a consistent sleep sleep and wake time, including at the weekends and on holidays, which I know is a little bit trickier. But what we want to do is to strengthen the child or young person's body clock. And really, we want to ensure that there's no more than an hour difference, say, between a school night and a weekend using regular and consistent bedtime routines as well. So and supporting these um, with visuals. Phrases um, can be helpful as well, that signal to the child that it's time to go to sleep. So, you know, good night, sleep tight or good night, it's time to sleep now. Sometimes being very specific um, for our children with autism is better. So it's time for sleep, it's time for bed. Making time during the day for relaxation, engaging in activities that reduce anxiety, not discussing anxieties or worries at bedtime. Our diet is important, so having a diet um, that's balanced, avoiding drinks or sugary snacks in the hours before bedtime. Being hungry, though, impacts on our sleep. So we don't want to eat too late, but we don't want to go to bed hungry either. So ideally, if there's a snack needed, something like warm milk or toast or a banana, milk and bananas, actually. Well, milk has melatonin, but milk and bananas have tryptophan, which is an amino acid that can help with sleep. So we need to avoid napping during the day Especially in the late afternoons, you know, oftentimes there's unintended napping when you fall asleep in the car, maybe helping the child to be able to fall asleep by themselves. Consistency in the sleep and wake environment is important. So, for example, the conditions that the child falls asleep in need to be the same as the ones that they wake up in if they're going to be able to self soothe or resettle themselves independently. So you might have where a parent um, stays with the child for them to fall asleep, but then leave. So when the child wakes up, the parent's no longer there. And then they find it harder to resettle or they may not be able to resettle at all because there's something missing from when they went to sleep, if you you understand. But there are children who will be very anxious around bedtime. So then using strategies such as like graduated, withdrawal or the disappearing chair can be used. Having um, a comforter or transitional object can be used. As I mentioned a uh, a few moments ago, it can be substituted for the, the parent or the carer in the absence. Having a reward system in place as well, that can help to motivate and encourage the desired behaviour so for example if you're working on the child staying in their own bed at night time. You mentioned the disappearing chair it's quite an mm-hmm. intriguing term could you explain <laughs> a little bit about what that means? So the idea behind the disappearing chair is that it can be very helpful for children who are anxious at bedtime um, and who want their parents to stay with them or their, their carers to stay with them so we would start um, at the bed with our Sitting on our chair at the bed. You can have your your hand on the child's arm or on the child's back, but we want that to be static. So we don't want to have any um, rubbing or, or stroking. Then we would be again, we would stay at the child's side, sitting on our chair, but we would take away the physical touch. Then the next step would be where we would move the chair away from the bed, but we're still in the room. Then we move to the door, but inside the door, so we're still in the room. Then we move to outside the door um and then the next stage would be where the child would fall asleep and the parent or carer can can get on with their own evening so it's in stages how quickly you move or how quickly or slowly you move through the stages very much depends on the child so you may have um some children will will go through the stages maybe a new stage every couple of nights other children may take much longer than that if you're using this technique and the child wakes up during the night and gets up and uh, goes for you then you then you need to go back or resettle at the point that you were at so if you were at if you were at the stage where your chair was at the door for example then you would go back to you sitting by the door you wouldn't move the chair back to the bed if that makes sense can you go back Tara you can yeah I mean it's just important to go back at the right stage so if, if the child wakes during the night and they come looking for you, um, or they indeed, they maybe they get out of bed and you're still in the room, it's about putting them back in their own bed, being the boring parent, um, you know, trying to interact as little as possible. So you want them to have the, the, the comfort of you being there if that's needed at that point in time. I mean, it is, it is a graduated withdrawal but you don't want to have um, a lot of engagement because then that's going to make it harder for the child to resettle.
0: Very interesting, thanks. The final question for you, Tara, really is around older children and teenagers. Okay. Are there any strategies specific for teenagers who have difficulty with sleep?
1: They're not dissimilar, I suppose, to the other strategies that we would use, but what we do need to understand is that for teenagers, There's a lot of change going on. There's physiological change, emotional change, behavioral change, but there's also changes in in their circadian rhythm. rhythm. So what happens is that the hormonal changes that occur in puberty disrupt the teenager's body clock, and it can cause it to move forward by about two hours. So what that means then is that adolescents are more likely to be active in the evening and bed later, so they'll have um, lesser chance of getting the amount of sleep that they need. Um, and it can also mean that they find it harder to settle at night. So they find it harder to um, get up in the morning. For some, the shift can be quite extreme. It can it can cause what's um, called delayed sleep phase syndrome. So where the adolescent will go to sleep very late at night or in the early morning and then won't be able to rise until the late afternoon. So we want to look at putting in a good evening routine there to help prevent there being a lot of um, disruption to the teenager's body clock. But talking to the teenagers themselves, I would say to learn about sleep, learn about sleep and its importance. And then that's going to help you to be motivated to make the, any changes that you might need to make and also to be invested in your sleep. Like the, re, the research does show that sleep disturbances and the, the con- subsequent consequences in the day do significantly impact on emotional well-being, physical well-being and cognitive and social development in adolescence. So it really is worth your investment. I would also say getting, getting out, having regular exercise, having that routine. But if you don't like exercise, and not everybody does, then make sure that you, you get enough physical activity in the day. So it might be helping around the house, it might be helping out in the garden, etc. even walking the dog. Another thing would be to limit your screen time. Now, that won't make me very popular, but ideally you would have your bedroom as a tech-free zone. And ideally, you'd have tech-free time in the the one to two hours before your bedtime. So no television, no gaming, no phone. Difficult, for sure, yes, but worth the investment, as I mentioned. Um, Something else would be having a balanced diet, avoiding caffeinated drinks after lunchtime, establishing a routine for your bedtime routine, and establishing a sleep time and a wake time and sticking to those. So as I mentioned earlier, we don't really want, and and again, this is difficult, but we don't want there to be a big difference between the, um, the time you go to bed on a school night, for example, and the time you go to bed at the weekend. Another thing would be looking at what sort of relaxation activities you can do before bedtime. So it might be reading a book, it might be listening to music or indeed a podcast. You know, maybe thinking about practicing meditation or mindfulness, seeing if they're going to be of benefit for you. I suppose really it's in that piece about learning or that psychoeducation about sleep you know knowing that if you get enough sleep it's going to mean that everything you do the next day is going to be easier and if something does go wrong you're going to be able to cope with it a whole lot better if you've had enough sleep Tara thank you
0: very much for that really valuable insight into promotion of sleep thanks to all of you for listening to the Middletown podcast the podcast is released every Friday and is available from the centre's website and from Spotify.